Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I spoke with Zico Nates. He is the Director of Technical Operations at the Moonbeam Foundation. Uh, Moonbeam is a smart contract platform that allows applications to kind of go between Ethereum and Polkadot uh, so that you can work in like Ethereum-based smart contract uh, creation using Solidity as the software language, but then you can deploy on the Polkadot, which is, um, if you don't know, it's it's typically a lot faster uh, than, with transaction times than Ethereum, and it's a lot cheaper uh, to use um, than Ethereum because when Ethereum gets congested and there's a lot of demand, the prices for um, transactions go go up quite a bit. Um, so I talked to Siko about uh, kind of his uh, early uh, foray into being a journalist uh, after his dad was uh, a prominent journalist in Belgium, but uh, that wasn't really for him. He didn't take to it, but he did really get uh, kind of fall in love with the software world where he uh, wasn't necessarily much of a developer, but he was more um, on the management side of things. Um, we talked about uh, how he came to blockchain in 2021 and his love of gaming um, of all kinds like uh, Xbox and, you know, video games to role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and Call of Cthulhu. Um, and we talked a lot about how um, Moonbeam is, is working in the gaming industry. Seiko uh, had some of the most interesting comments I've heard about what blockchain and Web3 can do for the gaming experience and what it can't do. Uh, he had some really interesting uh, ideas about where blockchain and, and Web3 shouldn't be involved with, with game operations, but um, interesting ideas about where it could fit in. Um, so with all that, uh, let's get to the conversation. Uh, thank you, as always, for the support. And uh, please try to rate and give us a review wherever you get this podcast. Thanks. Hey there, Siko. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Hi, Matt. Nice to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you, too. And thank you so much for coming on, uh, Decent People. So I'm excited to talk to you for a lot of reasons. Um, we're going to get into gaming and Web3 and, and blockchain, you know, kind of enhancements and, and what gaming or what blockchain can bring to gaming, what it can't bring. Um, but, you know, you're also, um, you're head of, or you're, sorry, you're director of technical operations at the Moonbeam Foundation. And Moonbeam is, um, basically it's a platform that allows smart contracts to connect maybe between Ethereum and say Polkadot, which where you guys are working um, a lot. Uh, so you kind of get the, um, the ease, or not the ease, but I, I because Solidity, I don't think is an easy language, but you, you can work in Solidity like you would in Ethereum and then just launch what your, your project on, um, on Solana, or I'm sorry, on um, Polkadot through the Moonbeam platform. Um, did I get that right? Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, is there anything? kind of. So, I mean, so basically, um, yeah, so we're, we're a layer one blockchain. So on, on Polkadot, Polkadot is kind of this ecosystem of uh, blockchains. So, you know, they've kind of built this framework where people can launch their own blockchain, um, but then they are kind of connected to this underlying relay chain, which I guess is like, um, I think Ethereum is kind of now moving, you know, to the similar model, like what Ethereum is kind of called the beacon chain, basically, right? So, and um, and yes, and so Polkadot, um, typically if you deploy a Polkadot parachain, which is 
kind of what it's called in 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 their world. Um, you know, typically you do that in um, in uh, you know not in in Solidity but uh, in uh, Substrate, which is this uh, other program language. Um, but I think you know when you know when Moonbeam was started to get built by the team, I think you know the idea was kind of to bring EVM compatibility, right? So that you know essentially you could you know, take an application that was built on Ethereum uh, or a smart contract, series of smart contracts that are built on Ethereum and just wholesale port them over um, to Moonbeam and things should just work out of the box without any sort of modification, uh, code change and so forth. Um, it's not just about the code level. It's also just like, you know, so we support, you know, all of the same developer tools that are people are familiar with, with working on, on Ethereum. So Hardhat and Truffle and all this kind of stuff. And we also have a lot of the same tooling. So we have, you know, Etherscan, which in our case is called Moonscan, but essentially a branded version yeah. of uh, Etherscan. We have Chainlink for Oracles and all this kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, so that's kind of at the base level, the value proposition that Moonbeam brings. But then a lot of our focus has been on kind of what we call connected contracts. So, you know, the thesis a little bit is that, you know, we, believe that, you know, there's not going to be one single chain that ends up dominating all of Web3. Um, <clears throat> and generally, if you if you accept that premise, uh, then I think you sort of very quickly arrive at a position where interoperability becomes quite important. Uh, so, you know, it needs to kind of then be easy for users to operate across different chains and, and you know, kind of access the the assets of, for example, think NFTs or, or tokens or whatever that they hold uh, across those different chains in a, in a kind of a seamless way. And, and, and so we want to kind of be the best place to, to deploy these sort of multi-chain applications. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a great application. But then kind of the other aspect here is that you get the speed of Polkadot, right? With right. The because Ethereum can slow down when there's a lot yep. of yep. a lot of usage, it can get very expensive. So you can get the speed and the, the relatively low cost of Polkadot while still yep. using uh, Ethereum virtual machine basically contracts. Yeah, that, that's correct. And I think generally Polkadot's vision <clears throat> is to go towards composability, right? Where, uh, you know, essentially, you know, I mean, you know, people are building, I mean, you know, Web3 is, continues to expand and the type of use cases that people are building continues to expand. Uh, you know, you could sort of envision if you try to build you know, all of this stuff on a single chain, right? So all of the gaming, real-world assets, DeFi protocols, uh, NFT use cases, I mean, loyalty programs, I mean, the list goes on, on a single chain. Well, so like, so now you kind of, you will often have to deal with this kind of like noisy neighbor uh, yeah. kind of problem, right? Where, you know, some application next to you could be generating a ton of transactions and that drives up gas fees and that makes it more expensive for use users. And so, so yeah, the basic idea with, with Polkadot is that it allows you to, because parachains can kind of specialize, um, it allows those parachains to kind of, you know, it essentially kind of like paralyze or segment kind of the execution. So, so maybe you could um, delineate that for me, like parachain versus um, a roll-up. What's the difference there? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not super technical, so I'll try and do my, I mean, I have sort of like a 50,000 foot level uh, understanding. Uh, I'll try and kind of do my okay, best. Okay, because I'm at 100,000 uh, feet. So. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so so I'll try and sort of do my best uh, explanation of this. So I think um, there is probably some similarity, I think, in the sense that, um, you know, between like, you know, so if you think of something like Arbitrum or Optimism, um, that's operating on on top of Ethereum. Um, yeah, so they are kind of doing these like rollups. They basically like bundle all of these transactions 
and then periodically submit these to Ethereum and then they get validated there as well and sort of spread through the network. Uh, I think, you know, the parachains compared to the relay chain in Polkadot, I think it does kind of work in a somewhat similar fashion in the sense that <clears throat> in, in the Polkadot world, um, you submit your transactions to these collators and the collators are specific to your specific chain. So Moonbeam has its own set of collators, Akala, A-Star, um, Fala, some of these other ones on, on Polkadot, they have their own set of collators. And they collect all of this data, but then they end up submitting it in turn to this like shared validator network, and that is shared across Polkadot. And so I think in that sense, at least architecturally, um, I think it is somewhat similar to like Rollup. So even though I'm sure that the implementation details are, are quite different. but Okay, yeah. cool. No, that, that yeah. helps a lot. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll get into a lot of that uh, in, in a bit, but I wanted to kind of, you know, the news of the day right now is the SEC has approved finally um, the spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, I, I didn't realize it went back this far, but I guess it's been a decade in the making since uh, <laughs> they've tried to do that. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on that or just uh, have you been following the saga? No, I've definitely been. I mean, I think anybody who works in crypto in one fashion or other, yeah, it's been kind of difficult to not. Uh, I think you'd have to be pre-checked out not to be paying attention to this, even though I'm not personally not a big Bitcoin guy. But yeah, I mean, it's it's been sort of a long road uh, with a lot of up and downs. I think even <laughs> the events of the past 48 hours where, you know, first there was this <clears throat> tweet from Gary Gensler saying that, you know, oh, the ETFs are approved and then, 50, and, you know, Bitcoin started spiking and then 50 minutes later, uh, <laughs> it was like, oh, actually, you know, the account was compromised. I mean, I feel like that even that was par for the course, right? It just kind of yeah. shows like what a bit of a painful road uh, it's been. That, but, was funny, uh, yeah, I that wasn't the first fake news about this uh, right. a couple months ago. I remember, I think somebody even hacked into the uh, filing system, right? For right. yeah, and and file and put a fake filing out there that people would right. they knew they would find. And so, right, right, yeah. Bitcoin but, went up, I think, five yeah. percent then, and then crashed back down. Yeah, yeah. But I think generally, I mean, I think it's good news for the industry, right? I mean, I think, I think there is sort of you know a lot of um, investment. I think kind of sitting on the sidelines. I think you know if you just think of like, I mean, I even have people in my family or in in kind of my wider um, circle of friends and acquaintances who were like, well, I don't really understand this like whole crypto thing. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to kind of get involved too closely, but sure, if I could hold it in, you know, an ETF or in my 401k mm -hmm. or while up in Canada, it's like RSB, um, you know, and I could get one to 2% exposure, um, you know, I mean, part of a diversified asset portfolio, that makes a ton of sense, right? So, yeah. and so I think, you know, yes, there is, you know, I think, I mean, I believe, but I certainly I don't think I have a particularly insightful comment on this. But I think generally, you know, I think, yeah, there is a lot of people, a lot of capital just sitting on the sidelines that was kind of been waiting for this event. And um, and so I think this will give quite a boost to the entire industry. I think it's going to take maybe a little bit longer than some people think, because, I mean, if you think about it, OK, so the ETFs have been approved. Um, I think I heard that. Um, you know, the <clears throat> they won't start officially trading until like next week. And then if you think about it, so like if if what we're really kind of going for here is retail, you know, it takes a while for, you know, people that work with financial advisors. Okay, the financial advisors have to kind of now start thinking about how they present that to their clients and then uh and then have to start having conversations. And so I think it probably I mean I think people are kind of expecting Bitcoin immediately to kind of, you know, Shoot for like a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars. I think that's a little bit premature. I think, but I think yeah, it will sort bit. of give like a lift over 
a longer period of time as as you start seeing some of this retail money flow in basically yeah yeah, so. yeah i agree and I, I think the passive sort of exposure to bitcoin here is what's yeah. really important because it's still tricky you know to set up an account uh, at an exchange to set up 100%. a wallet to you know <laughs> the you're in charge of all of that stuff and you screw it up, you know, it's gone yeah. forever. Yeah. So yeah, like yeah. going through BlackRock or going through Vanguard or whatever, you know, that's, that's the way to go. I think, but just one thing I wanted to point out, which I, other people have already pointed this out and Gary Gensler, the, the chairman of the SEC put out a statement once, uh, you know, finally this was approved and we should say this wouldn't have happened without the courts. Uh, the courts right. stepped in and said, you know, you guys, already approved uh, an ETF based on Bitcoin futures, you can't turn around and say that, you know, you can't do a, a, an ETF on Bitcoin right. um, spot, you know, the actual Bitcoin, it doesn't make any sense. So they were kind of forced to, um, to, to approve it. But yesterday, Gensler, he came out with a statement and at the end of the statement, he says, uh, though we're merit neutral, I'd note that the underlying assets and right. metals, he's talking about metals, ETFs, mm. have consumer and industrial uses. While in contrast, Bitcoin is primarily a speculative volatile asset that's also used in illicit activity, including ransomware, money laundering, sanctions, evasion, and terrorist financing. So first of all, cash is used in all of those things too. And I'm sure the SEC is yep, in favor right. of cash. And I also just want to, I mean, it's, it's frustrating to, to see somebody at this level still say that there's no use for Bitcoin. I mean, it's a it's a global payment network that uh, can't be stopped by a government or a corporation. Uh, it's, it's having a huge effect on uh, parts of the world where there's hyperinflation or where the banking system isn't reliable. Um, so just in those cases alone, it's, it's, got, it's got an industrial, maybe not industrial, but it's got a use. It's got a consumer use like metals do. So I just get really sick of that. Um, and I know, you know, the caveat here is, is Gensler is the government. And so governments are, I think, afraid of this. And uh, that's something we shouldn't forget. You know, he's not out there protecting retail investors from Bitcoin. He is, you know, kind of carrying the water of the U.S. government here, which, you know, might not want to lose control of a global payment system or not have any, you know, say over how it's used. So I just find yeah. that part, you know, it's just, it's just kind of exhausting after all these years. Yeah, I think, I think I mean, it was clear that they, <clears throat> he was sort of trying to send a signal saying that, well, yes, we've approved it, but under duress because you essentially put yeah. a, a legal gun to our head, right? I, I do think, yeah, I mean, the stance is somewhat hypocritical. I mean, I always think like the, the thing when this comes up, and especially when you hear them talk about, oh, you know, it's being used for, you know, model ordering terrorist financing and so forth. I'm like, I mean, I distinctly remember you know, how seven, eight years ago, there was this scandal about uh, UBS, who had basically in Mexico mm -hmm. had, um, at various uh, branches, had installed bigger deposit boxes uh, because the Mexican drug cartels overnight, like they were making such massive deposits into their accounts that, yeah. you know, it didn't fit into the into the physical box. And I mean, these are cartels that have like a long track history of, you know, murdering and torturing people. And I'm, I'm so I, it's it's hypocritical, right? The reality is that, you know, yes, is there some criminal activity in crypto? Undoubtedly, there is. I mean, is that a good thing? Of course, it's not. Uh, you know, should we try and um, kind of, you know, eliminate that? Absolutely. But it's somewhat hypocritical to argue that the same thing is not happening in fiat, right? It's not like before crypto, there was no crime, nor did crime find a way to to move assets around, basically. So, yeah. And, yeah. and, and, 
Uh, and I think crucially, like when you look at something like UBS, like, you know, these like larger bank institutions, they've never really been held up to the same level of scrutiny or accountability that, that, that's clearly the crypto industry is being put through. So, yeah, yeah, I think I, I, agree. I would agree with you. That it's hypocritical. Yeah. And then the fines that they get, even though they're in the billions of dollars, it's a slap on the wrist for a yeah, global right, exactly. investment right. bank like UBS. Um, right. <laughs> all right, let, let's, let's go back a little bit. I was interested to see that you used to be a journalist and that <laughs> you, you were covering... Um, I think you started covering maybe the uh, the dot com boom. No, 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 no. So no. a bit of business understanding there. So I, I did want to. I so my my yeah. So I had a little bit of an unusual path to crypto um, in the sense that I think you get a lot of people with sort of like you know you know computer science degree. Um, I actually had a degree in political social science. So when I was in university, I mean it was a long time ago because I'm an old guy now. But uh, you know I wanted to go into journalism. Uh, the reason for that was my father was actually. Uh, uh, was a well-known uh, TV anchor, basically. He was like the news anchor in Belgium for, uh-huh. I think, over a decade and also ran like sort of Belgium's versions of 60 Minutes. And so, you know, it was a bit of monkey see, monkey do, right? So so I had this aspiration of going to journalism. I did do an internship as a TV reporter uh, while I was still in university. It was offered a job at a <clears throat> local TV station. Kind of realized I didn't like the job. Uh, you know, it was the thing. <laughs> Yeah, I was young, right? So I had sort of very naive aspirations of, oh, I'm going to do the grand investigative reporting. And the reality is a lot of, certainly when you're early in your career, a lot of what you do is like, well, they're rerouting this tram line. Yeah. Go talk to the local merchants for like an hour and find out how it impacts their business. And that wasn't exactly what I was like super excited about. I think yeah, especially when I, when when I, I was started, kind of... I was covering waterboard meetings in Stinson Beach, which on a Saturday morning... You know, so yeah, yeah, right, right. you, you got to pay your dues. Uh, yeah, a lot of the, times the thing those, I was specifically kind of turned off by was that it sort of became very clear to me very rapidly that um, even within that internship that you really don't have a lot of time to work on any story whatsoever. You get, you know, in the morning you come in at the redaction, they kind of tell you what to go um pursue and then you know there's a camera crew there's like more reporters than camera crews so like you on on site you get like 30 minutes and so i was kind of like i don't know i was like okay so how i mean can i even do the role as a journalist and like do honest reporting if i get so little time to even investigate the story and so that didn't didn't feel right to me and so yeah so basically i didn't pursue that career um then i was sort of like wondering okay so what am i going to do with my life uh like i think a lot of people do when they come out of university and you know Ended up working for a large French telecommunications company uh, in sort of an you know, IT slash webmaster role uh, without a computer science background. But it turned out, I guess I kind of had a knack for it. And I highly, I greatly enjoyed the work. I, I really enjoyed how, you know, programming and development had just um, just a tremendous amount of variety. It sort of felt like you were doing something different every single day. And it was never... You're never solving the same problem twice. I mean, tech moves really quickly, so you continuously have to kind of stay informed and updated. And yeah, and I never really looked back. I mean, my entire career has been in tech for for 27 years, basically. So yeah. So with your um with your father's background, you must have mm. kind of grown up in a cosmopolitan household, would you say? Where you, where oh you yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my family is like. I mean, my parents separated. I have a half brother and half sister who are. Uh, who are uh, half American, half Japanese. Uh, so, and you know, my my wife's from Ireland. You know, we live in Canada. Our kids are born here. I mean, yeah, we're like a little bit of a like you know, United I think, Nations. Yeah, a little together. bit like yeah, yeah, like it's a very sort of diverse family, basically. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, yeah. would you say that your dad instilled in you like maybe a love of curiosity or? Oh yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, my mother too. I think you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've always kind of wanted to know how things work and in, in kind of from top to bottom. And and I, I have very wide-ranging interests. I mean, 
you know, yes, tech has been my career, but I read a lot about, you know, very interested in history, uh, very favorite topic of mine, especially the kind of more obscure parts of history, kind of, you know, very interested in sort of the period of uh, 600. Um, so everybody, you know, when we go in school to Belgium, you get sort of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And that's only it's the Middle Ages. And I'm always like, what happened in that 700 year gap in between? And so it turned out that, that you know, what people call the Dark Ages, yeah. sort of a very formative period of uh, Europe's history. So yeah, so I tend to, you know, yeah, very broad ranging interests. Uh, and yeah, you know, obviously politics, current events, um, you know, kind of, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think personally, personality wise, I kind of like to know a little bit about everything. Uh, as opposed to sort of, you know, going deep into like one specific topic, basically. So, yeah. man, you sound like a journalist to me because uh, <laughs> I, I like that as well. I like to know a little right. bit about a lot of things and I really like to know how things work so that um, right. once I understand how something works, then only then can I usually write about it. And right. so that started with me with like Wall Street. And when I went to Bloomberg News and I had no idea about finance, but, you know, I was kind of thrown in the deep end and had to figure out how derivatives work and, you know, right. what's the fixed income market. And then I found out once I kind of got to a certain level of knowledge, I knew more than the editors did. And, you know, so it, it right. was nice to uh, have that sort of, um, they would be looking to me for things um, right. rather than like telling me what to do. Right. Um, is there anything from the dark ages that you've, that you've, um, you know, discovered or read about that just like blows your mind that you could share? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, to me, uh, you know, specifically, I mean, I don't know, pretty far from crypto, but I think, um, I think, you know, especially if you want to understand kind of how the modern Europe came to be, like you have to look at that period of 600 to 900. I mean, this is when, you know, you had sort of, you know, this kingdom that formed Francia, uh, under, uh, I'm trying to remember his name now. Um, I think it was Alfred the Great, who then, who then basically, um, basically when he died, he had these three sons, and then it broke up into like three different kingdoms, like Germania, Lotharia, and Francia, and that pretty much became the dividing line, the political dividing lines that determined like much of the history of like the next 1500 years, right? I mean, that became France, Germany, and then Lotharia is kind of like I think a little bit what you know I call Luxembourg, which is like Netherlands, Belgium, and and um, and you know the Benelux, and and that is really where like a lot of these dividing lines that fueled so many of these conflicts and mass people migrations over the next 1500 years, even well into the 20th century, uh, with both world wars, um, very much originated there. And so yeah, I just I just find that such a fascinating period. I really kind of like knowing just the entire sequence of events. And and the other thing I often think about is like just how history does repeat, right? It, it's you know, there's all these events happening right now in the world, you know, the war in Ukraine and obviously what's happening in Israel and Palestine and, and, you know, these great migrations of people and that obviously leads to friction and conflict. But that is not new. Like that has happened in every period throughout humanity's uh, existence. And, you know, there's always been, you know, wars and suffering. And, and so I kind of like to sometimes take a little bit of that sort of, you know, a little bit of a longer look. Yeah, no, it's great to have that perspective. Um, it, it sometimes makes me chuckle covering this, you know, covering crypto and Web3 a lot, you know, there's so many young kids, you know, not kids, but they're younger people in, in, in this space. And um, not just, you know, like the history that you're talking about, but like sometimes the lack of awareness about how regulation works in the United States or the way that, you know, the, the government is going to come after you if breaking the law. Um, it's just sort of like, it's like, come on, guys, let's, let's you know, you, you need to have a little perspective here. Um, but I'm, I'm curious. So then um, you, you, I think you got into blockchain around 2021, um, which, you know, 
I don't mean just any in disrespect, but that's a little bit late. Like what, yep, what was, fair. what was it? Um, did you, did you come across it before and kind of like dismiss it or what was the, what was your kind of uh, way that you were introduced to it? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I was definitely late. I mean, I'm not going to disagree there. Uh, there's no denying that. Uh, yes. I mean, I think, I think I had heard about Bitcoin very early on, like probably 2009. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I remember thinking at the time, uh, I mean, <laughs> what, like, okay, there's some sort of online money and like, you know, I, I don't know. It just seemed like kind of a fad at the time that, you know, I, I think specifically remember, I think, you know, people were like paying pizza with it for like, you right. know, like right. massive amounts. And I was like, okay, it's never going to have really any real value, which sometimes shows that I think I'm not necessarily a good predictor of where the future goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, like, so most of my career has been, you know, I mean, I had sort of a 10-year stint as kind of like as a developer slash architect and then sort of went into, uh, you know, management and, you know, the, the whole team lead and you know, director, senior director, VP of engineering. Uh, so I have, you know, a lot of experience sort of leading, you know, distributed teams, like not just, you know, teams that were like physically close to me, but also people, you know, I mean, I worked at like a large multinational company. So I had teams all over the over the planet and, and distributed time zones and so forth. And, you know, I mean, yes, I mean, I kind of went into management out of a, passion of, you know, as a developer, you're sometimes looking at the people that are giving you direction. You're like, I don't know that these guys know what they're doing. <laughs> and so I had maybe the temerity to think that, you know, I could do a better job and, and, and very much, um, it was very much kind of out of a kind of a service mentality. I wanted to kind of really, you know, be an advocate for the people that were working for me and, and, and make sure developers, you know, were kind of getting their needs met and so forth. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, you spend any time in management, you see the stuff that works, you learn a lot. I think my viewpoint did shift quite a bit. Uh, and I understood over time that it was kind of a difficult role and comes with its own challenges. But, you know, you also just see the bloat, right? Like there's just, yeah. you do end up with like a lot of, you know, middle management that then has to justify kind of its existence and and this kind of thing. And I think that's kind of what brought me to crypto was this sort of, you know, I mean, sort of this combination of, you know, my interest in history and politics and and kind of, you know, why societies are the way that they are. Some of my frustrations of working at larger companies and some of the inefficiencies I saw there. And 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 it just I'm just like nobody, you know, nobody's trying anything different. Like it's still sort of, you know, the even you know, if you think about politics, the general message is democracy the best system that we've ever invented. Okay. <laughs> but like, can we do better? And like nobody seems to want to tinker with like the the basic you know preposition right and especially when it comes to corporations corporations are still built and set up the way that they were for like i mean more than 100 years basically and and so that was what fascinated me about crypto that here's at least there's a group of people that are willing to kind of take that status quo and actually say well like you know what this isn't working for people anymore let's let's see if we can um uh, you know, change the model. And and yeah, and it's messy. And, and I think decentralization often in some ways doesn't work and becomes very chaotic. But I think it's brave. I mean, I admire the courage of everybody working in this industry to try and find kind of original path. And, and that very much appealed to me and is kind of what, what brought me here. So, yeah. Do you think um, there is a very uh, strong strain, I think, of, of that sort of... Um, I don't know if it's pragmatism or it's just, yeah, just wanting another system. I think that the, especially um, enlivened early Bitcoin, uh, you know, enthusiasts and with your interest in, in politics and, and history, do you, how, how much of that do you think helps propel kind of the crypto, um, 
industry in its early days, you know, like um, I'm trying to think of the word, but I can't think of it uh, right now is that, um, you know, just, just the way that, that folks uh, are, are rejecting the current systems. Um, apart from the technology, have you had thoughts on, you know, like the philosophy of it all and how important no, that is? No, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, this may be a bit of a trite point, but I mean, Bitcoin and Satoshi came out of the 2008 financial crisis. And I'm old enough that I lived through that. I mean, I was, yeah. uh, and it was very interesting at the time when it was happening. I was all over the news and like reading about Barclays and like subprime mortgages. And and I specifically remember in the case of Barclays Bank, you know, these stories about, and like seeing it on BBC News, right? How you know, the queen got her money out and like ordinary retail holders were like holding the bag. <laughs> and And I think, you know, there is this thing where like, you know, the banks are not, your friend, right? They're not, you know, you are the product. Like, you know, the, you are, you are, uh, they're not there to make you money. You're making them money. And, and, you know, once the thing falls apart, like, you know, like I think, you know, as some, a lot of people found out in 2008, suddenly there's nowhere to turn to. Like, you know, they, like people have worked their entire lives and have accumulated savings. And then because of things that are completely outside their control that they had no direct involvement in, you know, the system fails. And everybody just washes their hands of it. The large, you know, banks, you know, walk away from it. Governments say, well, like, there's nothing we can do. This is the system that's the way the system works. I think, you know, it's just a, you know, you know, an abject failure of accountability. And I think, yeah, so I think 100%, I think, you know, very much kind of in line with that ethos and, and totally understand how people, uh, you know, I think that kind of was like a big uh, impelling factor, basically. So Yeah, and it's also <clears throat> a little discouraging to you what, what what happens in the wake of like the financial crisis was we saw, we, we fixed the system for the, for the last crisis, right? Like it's all retroactive. So now that, that thing can't happen again, but that's not what happens. It doesn't, doesn't take into yeah, account. Yeah, it just moves to the next, yeah. Yeah, like it doesn't take into account what, well, where are the vulnerabilities still in the system? And so many times those vulnerabilities come down to, oh, it's a dark market or, you know, you, you don't, the banks won't tell you what's going on there because they're making a shit ton of money in right, those areas. Right. And that, that's, that's where the risk builds up. Was there something in crypto that really grabbed you and, and like a, a use case or a project or something um, that really just made you say, okay, I got to I got to jump yeah, in? Yeah, the, the, the one that when I got into it, I mean, I was listening to like a lot of podcasts and, and trying to kind of understand, you know, Okay. Okay. So, you know, what is all this, you know, why are people talking so much about this? Right. And, and I sort of, I think I sort of intuitively grasped the whole, you know, you know, for example, Bitcoin is a store of value. I mean, value is like a somewhat subjective, it's a subjective construct, right? Why do we sign value to money? Well, because it's a collective illusion because you and I agree and the store owner who we give the dollar bills to, they agree that this piece of uh, paper has value. So that is not a difficult concept to grasp. But I was like, okay, but then, you know, when you start thinking about Ethereum and smart contracts, um, I think the one that kind of really, um, I'm trying to remember now, I think I think it was LifePeer. I remember like listening to this podcast on LifePeer and where they were kind of explaining how, um, yeah, I think I think this, I think it was LifePeer. I think like, they have basically have this like platform where um, they handle, uh, uh, the encoding and storage of video, right? And and you know, and, and in my previous role, I mean, 
you know, we, you know, I was working at this, you know, large company, um, multinational company. We were using a lot of like cloud hosting services, so working a lot with AWS and so forth, and and you know, heavily involved in well, both like the implementation of that and you know, kind of understanding our AWS costs and like trying to lower them and so forth. And this was the thing that like sort of really for me made the light bulb go on because you know I worked a lot with AWS, familiar you know, with their account management and their interfaces and their systems, and. I mean, they've built an awe-inspiring thing. I mean, AWS runs like 50% of the internet. And when you work with the AWS tooling, it is really, really good. Like, I mean, you know, they have, you know, I think it's very difficult for people to replicate that because they have so many engineers working on it. But then when I understood about, when I learned about LifeBear, where basically, you know, they're building, they built this application, and this is older, this is like 2015 or 2016, but they basically built this application where, you know, people can, you know, shoot a video with their with their mobile phone and then in this distributed network, have the video both encoded and hosted. And essentially, there is no company. It's just people coming together, you know, building, you know, hosting these nodes, getting incentivized by the underlying protocol to make compute available. And, and it delivers like similar functionality without the overhead of, I mean, think, you know, so if AWS has 350,000 people, <laughs> think about the yeah. amount of managers and VPs and I guess people like me in my previous role, and like they don't exist. And that just blew my mind that like there was this like different model uh, that you could build. And that to me really kind of made me understand. I, I felt like at that point, I kind of intuitively grasped, you know, sort of the benefits of smart contracts and 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 then tokens as incentives in order to incentivize, you know, economic activity that contributes to the health of the network and so forth. Uh, that, that to me was like, like a pretty big paradigm shift. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like taking something that you're very familiar with in a web two world and decentralizing yeah. it and making it web yeah. three. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. Um, okay. So what was the next step then? Then what, like once you had that realization, what did you need to do about it? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I mean, you know, I, I was like, you know, my previous role was kind of ending and, and I did, um, I did know various people that were like working in the industry and, uh, you know, I was sort of, you know, you know, I mean, I, I'd sort of, at this point I had been sort of in like management for 12 or 13 years, basically uh, at this one specific company and it's just time to go do something else. It was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like at some point you just want to get like new challenges, right? Just like a change of scenery. And uh, yeah. And then I, you know, sort of reached out to some of those people and, 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 you know, I had good relationships with them and, and, you know, they were interested in, in kind of working together and, and then, uh, and then, yeah, I came over and I think, you know, initially I did spend quite a bit of time kind of learning about, kind of more on the tech side, at least again, like I'm not, you know, again, right. I'm like the guy that knows a little bit about everything. So, so I can kind of, you know, I've, I've written some software that, you know, does like, you know, token transfers and so forth. And, uh, and so I've like, at least a high level understanding of how some of this works is enough to kind of build like some basic applications. But, but then at some point, like, yeah, within, you know, I've started working for the foundation and, um, you know, my role became more about sort of like grants and ecosystem development and, you know, this kind of thing. So, um, and again, I'm, I've been kind of the guy, Traditionally, that like I go where I'm kind of needed, you know what I mean. So, and I tend to be pretty adaptable. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm kind of the guy that you slotted when you kind of have a gap, basically. So, yeah. And um, I, I've been told you have a love of gaming. Uh, I do. Like yeah, all sorts of games. <laughs> that's it, right. And I think Polkadot. That's a big application on Polkadot, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Was that something that drew you to Moonbeam specifically, or was that I think it was, you were? Yeah, I think I think um, I think you know I've been quite involved in actually kind of trying to build like you know moonbeam's uh, gaming strategy so yes i mean i am a i am a <laughs> i am a hardcore nerd uh, i'm not gonna lie about that i've been 
<clears throat> video gaming since I was eight years old and I'm 49. So that's four decades of uh, a lot of wasted hours building stuff uh, in, in games. I wouldn't say um, wasted. I don't think yeah, it's wasted. So, uh, and yeah, so not just video games. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I've, you know, video games, a console, I'm mainly like a PC gamer. I, I do have like a PlayStation, but, you know, I'm more like a, I tend to like, like kind of, Games that take like a larger time investment, so like role-playing games or strategy games, and forth. Um, I do have you probably tell I've large collection. That's like por- portion of it, but you know I've also been a um, avid role uh, pen and paper role-playing uh, gamer since I was 13 years old. So started like so many people with Dungeons and Dragons, but uh, I had a pretty good group of friends in Belgium that I used to play with every week on Wednesday, and you know everything right like Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, Rollmaster. Um, uh, you know, lore master, Middle Earth role playing, Cyberpunk, uh, Call of Cthulhu, which was always like a big favorite of mine. And then, and then from there, also, I mean, once you get into that, you get into like sort of war gaming, so like a little bit of Warhammer, uh, and then also a lot of collectible card trading games. So I was like a very, very early player of Magic uh, because I had a friend who I have a friend who. Uh, had a connection to Wizard of the Coast, and and so I think you know I was one of the first people to get my hands on it, basically. So that was kind of fun, and and yeah, so that's been like a big passion of mine. And and I, you know, again, everything kind of comes together, right? I like thinking about, I like playing games. I also like thinking about kind of like business models and and how those could transform, and and how you could kind of drive better engagement for uh, for players and and so forth. And and yeah, so I've been heavily involved in kind of helping to build. Um, Moonbeam's gaming strategy and, and trying to get, you know, more games to deploy. Yeah. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons, if you've got the right group of people, there's nothing better, in my opinion, because no, it's, it's just pure imagination, you know, right. and, and it's yeah. just so much fun. And uh, the rules are there, but, you know, that's, you know, then, then, then the sky's the limit. Um, and I was wondering, you, you mentioned magic. Uh, were you ever involved with uh, Mount Gox before it was a Bitcoin? I was not, no. Uh, no exchange? No, okay. No. <laughs> for those who don't know, I think Mt. Gox stands for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. And it was oh, nice. Okay. I did not know that. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, it was That's originally cool. yeah. uh, an online exchange for cards. Um, oh, okay. That's then, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Cesar Vansaris or something. I can't remember who bought. They bought the domain and turned it into a Bitcoin exchange, uh, but kept the name Mt. Gox. So now, okay, your love of gaming is here, and now your understanding of blockchain is here. There are some things that that marry very well, and some things that don't. Can you let's let's talk about that? What what are the things that you think like a Web three environment or an on chain environment can do to make gaming better for for a user or for a player? Yeah, so I think that's where I have maybe some unusual ideas. Um, I think you know I hear a lot of people in the industry talk about you know, true ownership of gaming assets, right? So the basic concept, so let's like Magic the Gathering as, a, as an example. Let's say Magic was a Web3 game. Uh, okay, so now I own the cards uh, in some sort of digital format and you and I could trade them, right? So there's, you could now kind of create a market for that. Um, I think that's what everybody's kind of chasing, but I, I think there are like a couple of challenges with that model. And like, I think specifically... For a gaming asset to have value, it has to have utility. I mean, I guess there is a little bit of the, you could also look at it as like achievements. You could say, well, I was the first to slay this boss or get this item. And there's some NFT representation of that. And I guess the digital bragging rights and that, sure, that has value. But then can you trade that? Can I sell you the fact that I was the first one to kill the dragon? Because now you have yeah. the achievement, but you didn't actually earn it. So that, that's uh, more like reputation. Of that, right? Almost, so, right? so reputation, right? So, right. Yeah. and so the idea is like, okay, but you know, you could theoretically 
you know, you could theoretically, uh, yeah, you have true ownership of, of assets. So if the game goes out of business or the team stops building it or whatever, you still own the card or the sword or the dragon or the armor or whatever. Okay, but if the game doesn't work anymore, does that have any utility? Like, does that even mean anything at that point? I think at that point, the value of it would like just evaporate. So I think that's a little bit of a fool's errand that people are chasing. Um, I think it would work if you had interoperable NFTs, right? So if you had an NFT that, you know, worked on game A and also worked in... So so imagine a sword that works in two games, right? And built by different publishing studios. That could work. Uh... And I think there's definitely a value proposition there. I just don't see a lot of people building it. Um, and I think, you know, there are some challenges. I think, you know, a lot of these studios are, you know, they're, you know, gaming development is a very expensive business. It costs a lot of money up front. Uh, you're doing a lot of upfront investment. And then, you know, it takes three, four, seven years sometimes for like really large games um, to build and deploy. And then only then do you start making money. And so I think all of these studios are like, they're extremely cost conscious. I don't think they have a lot of time for this sort of, you know, hey, let's go. They want to have a moat around them, right? They want to have a moat, right? And so it's like, it's like, yeah. So like if I'm building a game, you're building a game, it'd be great if you implemented functionality for my NFTs. Mm -hmm. But why would I do it for yours and the other way around? And so somewhere like this cooperation, while at least on paper it exists, in practice, I think it breaks down and you don't actually see this. Um, so I do think that model can work, but I think you almost need like an outside third party. I think you need something like the PlayStation Network or Steam or or the Xbox Network who comes in and like incentivizes studios to build this sort of like interoperable NFTs. So, so imagine something where um, you know, a, a publisher like that, right? Or or like a, a distribution vehicle almost, because that's really what Steam and like PlayStation Network are. Imagine that they're issuing NFT collections and then kicking back a portion of the sales back to uh, the studios and then in return saying, hey, you need to, um, uh, you need to offer support for this. I think that that could work. Uh, and, you know, we are, I'm talking to sort of a couple of, um, Outfits that are kind of looking at that model, but I think it's still pretty early days, basically. You know what I mean? So, um, so yeah. So I, I think that's one, and I think that seems to be what everybody is chasing to some extent. I don't think that's the only one. I think the ones that I'm also interested in are like, uh, so competition over assets. I think is kind of an interesting one. So uh, again, kind of a concept from Magic, right? Magic had this very early on. You could do like a deal with somebody for anti, and where you know you could say, well. You know, I have my deck with 40 cards. You have your deck with 40 cards. I randomly pull one out. You pull one out. We have the duel. If you beat me, you get that card that you pulled out of my deck. And so that could be something with a lot of value. It could be something with very little value. It definitely makes the game a lot more <laughs> exciting and yeah. also nerve-wracking, right? And so I think that could add like a lot of immersion for games. So I think EVE Online, for example, has built, I think, an entire business model on this where um, a core part of EVE Online's gameplay is the underlying economy and specifically competition over assets in the economy and also the destruction of each other assets, right? And it just makes it so much more compelling and immersive because now you have some, you know, you don't just have like fake internet points at stake. You have something that actually has like monetary value. And I think so that could have, I mean, it's not going to be for every gamer, but I think there is an appetite among a subset, a large subset of gamers to, um, to be able to do, uh, like, to have that kind of experience, basically. Um, I think governance over the game itself, I think, would be a super interesting concept to explore. Um, I mean, I haven't 
I haven't played any competitive game, any game that involves like multiple people, single player games, maybe not. But at the minute that is multiplayer, whether it's com- whether you're even fighting or cooperating, invariably, if you go to the forms of whatever that game is, World of Warcraft, Diablo, uh, Magic, uh, you know, even EverQuest back in the time, the number one thing you read on the forms is the game's not balanced. The developers are not listening to the community. The community knows better than the developers how this stuff works. Uh, why don't we have more say in it? I mean, that to me has governance written all over it. And so I think it'd be super interesting to have a game where uh, where the community could say, you know, we're either the rule set of the game, right? How much something costs or how much energy it costs to use or how much damage it does or how difficult it is to build or, I mean, any of those aspects are are on chain and then a subject and is something that you could alter through like a governance vote. Um, I think also like the direction of the game Right? What should, what's the feature that we sit at next? What should we keep? Like should we remove? Structure? Yeah, DAO structure. Yeah, basically. I think that'd be super compelling. I think, you know, if you can get, um, you know, some sort of multiplayer game, especially if it has a competitive element, and the community themselves can decide kind of, you know, what strategies work, what strategies don't work, like what the direction of the development studio should be. I think, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you have something that has not been done in Web2 gaming. And I think that to me crucially is like, for Web3 gaming to work, to really work, to get mass adoption, I don't think it's enough to imitate what Web2 gaming is already doing because Web2 gaming already has digital collectibles and, and all this kind of stuff. I think you have to figure out how do you add something that you don't have in traditional gaming that actually like moves the needle and creates new experiences. And I think that's where gamers really get on board with it. Yeah, that's cool. It's it's. Maybe not ownership so much, but as a, like the governance or the direction yeah. of the game. And so you're going yeah, direct, to the forums. direct involvement, right? Yeah, and engagement. involvement, yeah. engagement. Yeah. And you're going to the forums and saying, all right, you got these issues? Well, then put your money where your mouth is, you know, and like step up. Because I think as we've seen as, you know, DAOs have been around for a while, but it's very difficult, you know, like it's very, I think they're, they are hard to manage. Um, they, they're, they're proving to be kind of, you know, it's like, who is going to step up and, and, you know, actually do the work uh, in, in amidst a community. Um, but in a gaming community like this that we're talking about, I think the, the incentives are there and uh, it, it, there could be the, the energy to kind of do those things that, that in other areas, maybe um, this is just not there yet. How is the performance of like, let's, let's take Polkadot, for example. Um, I know it's a very fast um, and relatively cheap um, blockchain ecosystem. Is it is that enough for gaming at this point, or do, do we still have a ways to go for the underlying kind of like you know blockchain structure? I actually think I actually think uh, that block times actually don't matter. I, I mean, so and and <laughs> the reason I say that is like so so I think Polkadot right now I think block times are like twelve seconds. Uh, there is work coming like later in the year to lower it to six. Um, that's pretty fast. Is it the fastest? No. I mean, just frankly, like Arbitrum has like better block speed, it's like sub-second basically, right? So, mm-hmm. um, but even sub-second is, from a gaming experience point of view, it's super slow, right? If I'm shooting you with a gun or I'm opening a loot box or I'm looking at your inventory or I'm hitting you with a sword, then there's like a, a one-second delay. I, it's just a horrible gamer experience. I mean, think about it. Like gamers, so much of the marketing around gaming hardware is about like, you know, 
you know, my, I mean, my monitor has like sub five millisecond response time. Like that's like, yeah. it's like a two hundredth of like the fastest block time. Right. So, uh, and, and, and graphic cards are like, you know, it's all about like pushing like, you know, higher frames per second. I mean, people now swear by like a game under 60 frames per second is like unplayable. So I, I just think that like, this is a bit of a red herring. I think, you know, there was a lot of, you know, so so gaming, Web3 so gaming, I think... Off, it's like for things that are not in the actual gaming experience. No, I think, I think you can just basically, I think of necessity, studios will kind of code around this. So I think in the beginning, when gaming kind of started in Web3, everybody was like, let's just put everything on chain. Like the whole thing, right? Like the whole gaming backend, there's like no off-chain component. The whole thing is on chain. And 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 you're essentially just working with the UI, and it, you know it talks directly to like you know the underlying RPC nodes. Um, I think a lot of those studios that have tried that have found that it's very difficult to implement. I mean, a it's you mentioned in the beginning, Solidity is not an easy programming language. I mean, it is it is it is pretty arcane, um, uh, and so I think it drives the complexity up a lot. Um, I think it becomes very costly because now if every time I shoot somebody, I have to like do a transaction and pay for gas like that. I mean, I don't know, like that, I don't know that that's economic. Right. So, and so, you know, I mean, I have spent like a lot of time over the last six months talking to gaming studios, trying to understand kind of working where the market's headed and like all these serious games, there's like, hey, listen, this is not what we're doing anymore. Like, even if we are putting a lot of stuff on chain, like we're basically like it, you're first talking to like an off chain component and it's like then kind of buffering everything and then deploying it and then like kind of like putting it on chain so that people can like validate the results. And so to them, whether, you know, the, the block time is like a second or six seconds or even in case I had, I remember one studio saying even 10 minutes on Ethereum is actually perfectly fine for block time because we're just basically going to code around it. Like we're not putting everything like with like a, you know, we're like gamers feel the latency of like writing to the blockchain. Um, you know, but that's just not how we're developing it anymore. Where I think a lot of the ask is from the gaming studios, it's actually in a different area. It's in like, it's like tooling around built for gaming, right? So, so if you think about this for game studios, you know, if they're building a blockchain game, blockchain is just one of the technologies now that they're dealing with. They also have to deal with, you know, UX and uh, asynchronous communication to backend servers. And, you know, they're obviously having databases and, and, you know, like message like buses and all this kind of thing. And, and, a lot of the gaming studios, like, I mean, they're, I mean, again, sounds kind of sound right, but like their DNA is in gaming, right? So they're like mm-hmm. very used to working with Unity and Unreal. You know, they don't want to spend, you know, three years getting fully up to speed with like blockchain technology to be able to use it. Um, it's also like gaming developers and blockchain developers, they're kind of a very different type of profile. It's difficult to find people with both skills. And also, frankly, blockchain developers are expensive, a lot more expensive than gaming developers. And so again, studios being kind of cost conscious, um, that's not where they want to go. So what the way that they think about it is the way that they think about every other technology is like, is there an API I can use, right? So like I have specific things I need to do with the chain. Are there like, you know, I need mint, mint NFTs or the transactions or like a check token balance. Can you wrap that for me in a nice REST API? Uh, is there like stuff that you can give me to uh, make it easier to, you know, create a wallet for a user? Because I don't want to really force the user to connect their wallet. I just want them to sign up with their social login. And so I think that's where a lot of the growth is, is I think that where like the opportunities lies and like kind of building more of this kind of tooling to some extent to somewhat abstract away the blockchain. It's there, but to make it easier for these uh, gaming studios to focus on their core business, which is building the game and then just integrating the technology like the integrated database or anything else. So so maybe it could be something where 
you're not in gameplay, but then like not everything else, but a big part of what your character is doing or your gaming right. experience is, is then like NFT based or it's, yeah, it's some, right. it's like you're at the store and you're, you're trading yep. or like you said, or the scores a of a game or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or the result of a duel or a match. Uh, you yeah. Can see how and that then can, you've got that a, a verifiable record of truth and That's everything right. like that. So that, yeah. you know, it's all uh, above board. Um, all right, cool. Uh, yeah, that that does make sense because I've never quite understood um, how you would have gameplay in a blockchain environment um, when, when, like you said, even sub-second times are not enough. Um, so, how is um, how's Moonbeam kind of dealing with all of these things that we're talking about, and where where are you guys like? You know, you're the director of technical operations there. Where are you? like you mentioned it a little bit, but like, I want to ask you directly, where are you talking to people? Like, where do you see the opportunities for you guys? And what do you think, where's the need right now that needs to be met? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I mean, I think where the opportunities for us are is like, well, A, I think we're, you know, we're working on attracting more games to come to Moonbeam, right? So, I mean, there are a number of native homegrown teams and that have deployed games and, you know, Everlute and Great Escape, XR Racers and forth. And, you know, those guys are great. We're, We're essentially interested in increasing that stable, right? If you think about it, there is this thing where like, you know, there is this sort of networking effect that you get, uh, especially because like at some point games can start cross-pollinating and, and saying, well, if you're playing this game, I'm maybe like, you might also want to check out this one, right? So, so that's part of it. Um, I think, you know, we're interested in, you know, we're also interested in kind of like the infrastructure around gaming, because I think, you know, you are going to see like, you know, these like marketplaces, um, I, I'm a big believer in sort of the need for something like, you know, like the PlayStation Network or Steam or some type of interface. So we're like, we're talking to a number of teams that are kind of um, building it. I'm actually talking to one right after this. Can uh, you do that in a decentralized fashion or do you need yeah. some of this to be centralized? No, I mean, I think I think there are like a sort of aspects of like, I mean, you know, I mean, like a lot of... A lot of what now happens in blockchain, like, I mean, so many of the teams, and I, I talked to a ton of teams. I mean, I'm part of the grant committees where we have all these grant calls and stuff. I mean, you know, you know, very a lot of teams now have sort of like a mix of like off-chain and on-chain architecture. Um, and so I think, you know, for, so if you think about sort of like, you know, like kind of like an infrastructure team around this, yeah, so they would have, you know, they would have like an on-chain NFT marketplace. Uh, they may be running sort of various promotional campaigns and doing airdrops and stuff like this to try and get people to come to uh, to um, to different games. You could see how like achievements in a game could be that you could then portray in a storefront end, right? Hey, I've been the first to kill this boss and I have this special, I mean, I don't know, avatar picture mm-hmm. that I could deploy and I, that I could display and now I'm like working in, community forums right and 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 um or if there's like a game dev forum uh you know you could see that hey like i have some legit gaming bona fides right because i was part of this guild that you know yeah world i, mean, I first can imagine metaverse, right, where you've got your avatar yeah. and because you've got so many accolades you look like you're fucking badass right right amongst right. all the other folks and people would i think people would enjoy that and, and right. gravitate to that um, I also think guilds, I mean, I always feel like in a way the whole, I wonder kind of, I don't know who came up with the concept of a DAO, but I wonder if the person that did was inspired by gaming guilds. Cause I feel like gaming guilds were almost like DAOs of all a letter, right? Like, like, I mean, before you had tokens, you had dragon kill points in EverQuest and like people were like rewarding each other for participating in 10 hour raids and so forth. And so, uh, so you could see how like, you know, sort of guilds, right? I mean, a guild has many of the same challenges as a DAO has. There's like governance proposals that need to get put through. 
you need engagement from your from your community. You have probably some higher ranked people or officers who who are like in charge of recruiting. I mean, you know, this kind of thing. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, a lot of this just has like blockchain written all over it, basically. You know what I mean? So, um, so I think, I think that's where like a lot of the a lot of the opportunities like yeah, like SDKs uh, to make it easier. Um, things to like do like. Uh, make it easier for people to sign up with like just like a social login, right? So where uh, a wallet gets created at background, like, you know, mm-hmm. like at least initially when you're starting your foray into Web3 gaming, you know, you're just logging in with your Google account and you're not even aware of the fact that there's a wallet getting created. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, like, yeah, there's just a ton of opportunities there. And I think you could think of it like, you know, you know, yes, gaming studios, like, you know, they need a lot of money. Okay. Another way to lower their cost is if there's just off-the-shelf solutions that they can use, right? So if there's an off-the-shelf solution for social login, okay, well, that's X amount of time that they don't have to spend developing it themselves. And so I think that's where, like, you know, I think we're looking at all of those type of things as as areas for uh, for product investigation, basically. So, yeah. Is it fair to say that you are, are like really dependent on Ethereum because that's sort of where uh, this starts, right? And then you can port the the smart contracts that are uh, usable in the Ethereum virtual machine and, and, and Ethereum in general over to Polkadot. Um, is that, is that no, being too I simplistic? No, I wouldn't say that we're dependent on them. I mean, I think, I think, you know, EVM as a standard, yes. I mean, I think, you know, the Ethereum virtual machine as a technology, uh, you know, and, and, and I mean, that is the mechanism that we've chosen because we just generally believe there's just a ton of developers you know, in Web3, I mean, this is the, the language that has the most developer representation. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that's how you get the broadest reach of developers that could potentially deploy in their platform. So yes, in that sense, like we're heavily committed to like it, the Ethereum standard. But I wouldn't say that we're dependent on like the Ethereum blockchain. I mean, we have people that are, uh, you know, that are just building. I mean, you know, we have, you know, projects and app studios coming to us. They've never deployed in any chain. And like Mumi would be the first chain that they ever deploy on, basically. So, yeah. 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 And I guess I'm asking that just to say or to ask you, what do you see in 2024 for that ecosystem? Like, what do you hope to see? And, and do you have any kind of predictions or, or thoughts about where things are heading? Yeah, for like Moonbeam Gaming specifically? like Yeah, and I guess maybe Ethereum in general and just oh, sort of, I see. You know, okay. that space. Yeah, I think, uh, I think just generally, I mean, outside, I mean, we've talked a lot about gaming. I think to me, like the, you know, the big growth cases, I mean, DeFi, DeFi is always been there, right? That's kind of almost part of the core DNA of um, of Web3 at this point. I mean, we have an extensive DeFi ecosystem on Moonbeam. Um, I think it's somewhat dependent on token prices, unfortunately, as the entire market, mm-hmm. as the market goes down, you know, it's sort of like people like kind of lose interest as the market picks back up again. So it tends to be like a rather volatile. But I think outside of that, I think gaming is a significant growth area. I mean, I think we are getting a ton of grand applications. We're talking to, like, we have a lot of inbounds. Uh, from from studios, you know, that are interested in deploying or at least want to explore it and want to see if they can get a grant and, and stuff like this. Um, so I think that's definitely one area. I think real world assets is another one. Uh, you know, we're um, we have a lot of teams in specifically in Brazil that I think we're getting quite a lot of traction with. Um, sort of bringing like, real world. Is that like land grant, like or land title, or are we talking like financial? No, uh, uh, financial I think it's instruments like more or? kind of financial. So, like for example, mm-hmm. think like things like um, so. So Brazil's kind of an interesting country because they have, um, you know, the, the, you know, they, the, well, so so like a lot of Latin American countries, they have had challenges with high inflation, and so mm-hmm. you know, when you talk to a Brazilian guy, 
unlike a European and an American, you don't have to convince them of the benefits of Web3. They instantly get it. They're like, well, yeah, I mean, I can... <laughs> I don't yeah. trust the banks, and if I put the money under my mattress, uh, you know, it devalues too quickly. So they don't have any problem getting yeah. to the value proposition. Answer? Yeah, they have no value, no problem with understanding. They intuitively grasp the benefits of Web three. Um, I think you know, the, there are a lot of challenges there with like getting access to credits, hmm. um, and so I think you know there are use cases there where people are looking at just providing ordinary like retail consumer credit, and 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 being able to source it from uh, from Web3. So I think, you know, we're seeing a number of use cases there. I know this is a case in Southeast Asia, but a lot of times it's not a lot of money that people need. Right. Like we're yeah, we're talking right. yeah. maybe hundreds right. or just like mm-hmm. several thousand dollars would, would be a big game changer yeah. for them. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's things like this. I mean, we're seeing stuff like um, there's interest around, you know, things like, um, you know, solar energy and like solar production and like, Kind of commoditizing it and trading it and and um, you know so so again and I think there is a hunger for this in crypto because I think people do want to yes I mean the the pure DeFi stuff is like it's insanely volatile there is a segment of of the DeFi community or the DGen community or Web three that loves that volatility right it's a way where people mm-hmm. can quickly see uh, you know their gains of course also you can quickly see losses I think there is also an appetite for this like more stable steady source of revenue that's like a bit more predictable. And RWA is like real world assets are like just a fantastic uh, use case for that. So, um, and yes, and, and again, to your point, it, in some of these countries, a little, a little can do a lot basically. And, and people don't have no way right now of, of getting credit uh, or, or access to funding yeah. uh, by other means. So, so yeah, that's, that to me is a fantastic use case. I mean, you know, so even, even from a social, social justice perspective, I think it's a fantastic use case. So, yeah. Yeah. I totally agree on that. Um, Osiko, thank, thank you so much, man. This has been really fascinating. I love your perspective on gaming. It's definitely uh, different than than I've heard before, but I think it's de- absolutely pragmatic. And um, I I just really like your perspective. Um, just let people know if they want to learn more about Moonbeam and, and about what you guys are doing, how how they can do that. Yeah, I think I mean, you know, I definitely um, you know encourage people to. Well, I think encourage people to. Come look at you know moonbeam.network. Network. That's you know our main site. Uh, there's links to our forums there. Um, I think we have a pretty active community, uh, and so I think that's a good way for people to um, get more information. Um, subscribe to our Twitter handle. I think you know we're regularly putting up uh, updates either about you know technology changes or or new you know new teams that are deploying and launching. So you know and yeah, just you know I think just generally uh, Google Moonbeam and you know, like you know we have a pretty yeah. big presence. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, hey, man, uh, best of luck to you guys. I'll be keeping an eye on what you're doing and uh, best of luck for everything in 2024. All right. Well, thanks so much, Matt. It's great to be here. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And make sure to subscribe and rate us at Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Curtis Fritch with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Ives.